Hey, today's show is sponsored by The Optimist at the platform in Culver City. Go say hi to Joey and David over there, my buddies who own the place. And uh, you get some of the coolest gear, incredible clothes, lifestyle. You can't beat it. Go there, mention my name, get 20% off uh, The Optimist LA. Please subscribe and leave us a comment wherever you consume your podcasts at YouTube as well. We appreciate it. Each person you get to subscribe helps our ratings. Today's guest from New York City, founder of Hudson Advisory, Stephen Ferrara. He's unbelievable. They were one of the top 10 brokers in the country with $1.2 or $3 billion of production, but a great guy, really down to earth, grew up on the East Coast outside of New York, really just dialed in on every level, knows his stuff inside and out. You can find him at, uh, at Hudson Advisory on Instagram or HudsonAdvisory.com. Uh, they're my go-to people in New York. So enjoy this episode. School is in session. Hey, welcome back to The Deal with Danny Brown. I'm here with today's superstar guest out of New York City, Stephen Ferreira from the Hudson Advisory Group. How you doing, brother? I'm well, Danny. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. I guess I need to disclose you're actually not in New York. It's a little sunny. Where are you? Where are you? Where are it you is. Uh, yeah, that's that's my my shameless plug. I'm in Miami at the moment, uh, and it's beautiful outside. Although in New York, it's 55 and um, feeling a lot like spring. So um, <laughs> somewhat bittersweet to have escaped the tundra and uh, they're having a, a good weather weekend ahead of them. Well, don't worry about it. It's 85 degrees in LA, so we're all going surfing after this. So don't don't be jealous. God bless you. Nice to be you, Danny. <laughs> so look, I want to jump into uh, a, a lot of stuff today. Hudson Advisory Group, which you founded 2017, one of the top teams in the country, four or five hundred million dollars of production last year, and, and maybe one three one point three billion. Excuse Danny, me, one point three billion dollars of production last year. What what's a couple hundred million? So anyway, why I want to jump into this is that, yes, there's a lot of incredible brokers in our network that we all know. Uh, you're my New York guy. But what I want to jump into is Hudson Advisory was founded five, six years ago. The trajectory has been insane. It's like something I've never seen. Kind of talk us through uh, how Hudson Advisory started and the trajectory from year one to year two to year three, four, et cetera. So we have an idea uh, because you know this this has rarely happened in real estate where a team has come on in a big market like this and taken off. Yeah, it's my pleasure, and, and thank you for the kind words. So, you know, high level, we started. Uh, my partner Clayton Rigo and I founded Hudson Advisory, um, kind of tail end, call it Q four of sixteen, and okay. and really launched it formally uh, Q one of seventeen. Um, the the initial gr crew, if you will, was. A director of operations, um, Clayton and myself, sort of at the helm as partners and founders, and two junior agents. Um, okay. We had tremendous success, kind of right out of the gate. And I think taking a step back, we both had very good individual careers. So uh, I was at a company named Town Residential. Clayton was at a company, Douglas Elliman, worked with Frederick and John. Um, we both kind of flew under the radar. And, but we were both doing big business. I mean, when we signed our contract at Compass, I had a, a $70 million a month and, and I was just a standalone agent, no team, no partner. So, um, you know, we looked at that. We had a, were very similar stylistically. Our business is extremely similar. Where we were transacting was the same neighborhoods and a lot of network overlap. So we actually met on a deal 
we really hit it off. We, we decided kind of organically that one day we should do something together. The question was, what was that something? Where was that something? What did that all look like? Um, it all crystallized. We, we launched Hudson Advisory in 2017. The initial thesis was really keep it, keep it small, keep it all. Um, it was something we did not plan on having a, a very large team. We did not plan on um, servicing multiple markets um, because we had such a tremendous success and were really well received in the brokerage community. You know, we're big believers in specialization of area and neighborhood. And in Manhattan, people often say, how's the city market? And, and I am forced to ask which market, right? right? There's 12 submarkets right. just in Manhattan. That's not including the outer boroughs, not including Brooklyn. So, you know, as our business started to grow, as our deal volume and deal flow started to go grow, excuse me, we really wanted to make sure that everyone stayed in their lane. I'm, I personally, my, my lane, my market is downtown luxury market. So I'm getting calls to, to do uh, work on the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side. Could I do it? Sure. Have I done it? Yes. Is that, you know, my area of expertise? No. So as we started to grow our business and as we assembled this team, we really wanted to handpick people for specific neighborhoods with specific skill sets. You don't want, you know, big thing with team building and you, you learn it over time is you don't want everyone to be the same. Everyone needs to provide some value, some edge, some utility. Um, and that's how you really build and form a, a well-rounded team that can effectively handle transactions from, you know, 3000 a month rentals or half a million dollar sales to $50 million sales. Um, and last year we were, you know, fortunate enough, we sold the penthouse at 56 Leonard penthouse 60 That's for 45 million. Is that 55, yeah. 56 million? Uh, it was 45 million. We closed. And how big was that? How big was that unit? It was like 7,000 or six. Yeah. Just shy of 8,000. It was duplex, 18 foot ceilings. Um, some of the best views I've ever seen in Manhattan and, you know, over $6,000 a foot. So, right, for the so that's what I'm getting at. 6,000 a foot. We're here in LA, you know, some of the peak peak buildings, 3,000 a foot is, is sort of the, the ultra, ultra, ultra high end. And there's very few buildings there. So that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, listen, you quantify, it's hard to quantify. Um, there's some subjectivity to value of something that has 20 foot ceilings at the top of a building with unobstructed 360 degree views, right? The yeah. base of the building is not selling at 6,000 a foot, just to clarify. But all of that said, you know, we wanted to build a team that could service everything from entry level to the highest of high end um, in multiple markets. So we're in Brooklyn, we're in the Hamptons, we're in all of the Manhattan submarkets. Um, and you know, today, I, I long-winded way of telling that story, but we started with a, a team of five. Today, we're a team of 25. 25 agents or is 25 include support? 25 soup to nuts, that's directors of you know, support marketing. Everything. That's directors of operation, that's in-house media and, and, and all visual representation. So photography, videography, et cetera. Um, so you're doing that in-house too. How many agents are actually selling out of that 25? We have 17. All right, so it's a good And that's, a, that's across three markets. You know, most people look at New York, they don't sort of bifurcate Manhattan to Brooklyn. We 
we made a conscious decision to do so because despite the fact that a lot of people who look in downtown Manhattan will also look in Brooklyn, the area of expertise and really being able to specialize in those neighborhoods is not somebody who's living in the West Village who you know goes to Brooklyn Heights or goes to Dumbo. It's someone who lives in Dumbo, someone who lives in Williamsburg, yeah. the same as I live in the West Village. I know the streets better yeah. than anyone in the West Village. Boots on the ground. You got to know, and feel and touch and smell and know the nuances. And I, I totally yeah. get that. There, there's so much to unpack here. So I want to rewind to one of the first things you said, because I wasn't aware of this. Um, you were saying that you and your partner were in the business producing at a high level, just under the radar. Speak to me about that. How long have you been in the business? I didn't realize that. I thought I, you I'm year in. nine now. I'm year nine. Okay. Uh, so I was still I was, a rookie, but you're getting there. Still a rookie. I have <laughs> I haven't hit that ten year that that decade yet. Um, so you were in, in, in it for five years before yeah. you started Hudson Advisor. So you exactly. already were in the game, and your partner and, too. And, my partner's 10 years. So he's, he's, you know, uh, he's a year ahead of me in the business. He's two years older than me. Um, so what comes with that okay. in New York being a very social city is, you know, that's effectively the same age, right? We we're doing the same things. We're going to the same places. We know the same people, sure. which really was, it, it's been great because it's allowed us to amplify what we do and how we do it. You know, it's it, rather than me Smart. making noise to the left him making noise to the right, we're both yeah. making noise in the same direction. And because of that, it's hard to ignore. Yeah, and it's a theme I've seen uh, with talking with other teams uh, that have two guys that, or gals that have partnered up where it's like one plus one doesn't equal two. A lot of times one plus one can equal three, four, five, ten X. And totally. it's really smart. It sounds like you guys have both recognized that and thought, OK, similar aesthetics. We trust each other let's put this together and see if we can grab more market share by coming together. And it, it clearly has worked well. Um, and to speak a little bit about another thing you said with team members, it seems like you've taken a really strategic approach, which is also just spot on with having an expert in a micro market on your team. So it's not like, Absolutely. hey, I got five other people that are in the same neighborhood as me and I'm just going to give them deals that I can't handle. You're like saying, hey, I want to bring in the expert uptown, the expert in Brooklyn, the expert here. Absolutely. I love that concept. I find that well, it, I don't it, think people it do does that. Is, it, it allows you to really, in some respects, corner a market, but it allows you to effectively capture market share in an organic way where there's no imposter syndrome. I, I walk into a pitch in West Village, Greenwich Village, Soho, NoHo, Tribeca, which are my core markets, sort of the downtown luxury market. And don't get me wrong, I'm studying this stuff all day, but I can walk in um, and really understand the property, understand. I know sure. people in the building more than likely. I've sold a house on the street before. There's some version of a, a level of confidence and conviction. And, and the resume also can't be ignored, where if I'm right. getting pulled into a pitch in Williamsburg, you know, I, I, I've sold one apartment in, in Williamsburg totally in nine it. years. I love it. I love that concept. All right. So we're going to shift gears now. Uh, got, we got a breakdown of the Hudson Advisory. By the way, just brilliant branding. The name Hudson Advisory sounds like a legit Appreciate company that. that's been around for 200 years that my grandfather carried a briefcase to on uh, Wall Street. I love it. Uh, but let's go, back to, let's go back to the beginning. So tell me a little bit about yourself personally, where you grew up, where you went to school, what your parents did for a living, and sort of walk us up to how you got into real estate. I love that. Um, I don't, I don't know how uh, interesting of a story it is, but it's a story nonetheless. So 
I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. Um, I reference Montclair because it's about 12 miles outside of Manhattan. Um, a lot of people, very close. You know, it's a big commuter town back into the city. Um, a lot of it has a lot of connectivity to the city, if you will. A lot of families who lived in Montclair. Isn't at that one where Tony point. Soprano lived? Uh, Pretty close. Probably. Probably. <laughs> um, uh, I think he was in Caldwell, which is next to Montclair. Next but door, for yeah. conversation's sake, we'll call it Montclair. Um, but, you know, a lot of the families that lived there it's at one point or another lived in Manhattan or in Brooklyn and moved Back. there as their you know life progressed. And they chose to, to move from the city to the suburbs. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Montclair. My mother's a school teacher, uh, recently retired. She's a speech pathologist. So I'd like to think I got some very uh, elementary level of patience from her. Um, and my father was uh, also recently retired, was a, in the liquor industry and he worked in Manhattan. So I was um, going to the city at a young age. You know, the 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 concept of Montclair, New Jersey, at least in my mind, was you, you're born here, you're raised here. And when you're when you're done with living here, you move to New York and that's where you kind of start the that next phase of your life. So that's yeah. what I did. Um, I graduated in 2008 and I was supposed to go work at Lehman Brothers. And um, as Perfect we know, time. Lehman Brothers, yeah, I, I moved into the city in September of 2008 uh, to what I thought was a job and, and the job was no more. And I had no plan B, there was no backup plan. So um, I, I leaned on my father and said, what, what do I do? And he said, well, what's your plan? And he said, I said, that, that was my plan. He said, well, what's your plan B? I said, I don't have one. He's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. So he made one phone call uh, to a dear friend of his who is the GM of, of um, a well-known hospitality brand. I believe at the time it might have been the Helmsley. But my first job, fast forwarding, was at the Peninsula Hotel. Okay. So I pivoted from finance. I wasn't meant to be in finance. I didn't study finance. Um, it was definitely not the path that I, I would have you know, taken. Um, but it was a path nonetheless. I, I transitioned into hospitality, which I actually really enjoyed. And I think part of the my, my reference of my mother giving me a little bit of patience, my father gave me a lot of hospitality. I would see when I went places with him, we'd go to restaurants and they were accounts that uh, he would be working with. And I'd see how he'd work the room. I'd see who he'd talk to and how he'd give people special yeah. attention, how he'd how he knew people's, you know, their wife's name, their kid's name. How's your son doing, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's good it, stuff. It, you can't learn that at Harvard Business School. You cannot learn that at Harvard Business School, um, although maybe they teach a course online at, at HBS now yeah. for that. But I, I had the front row seat of sort of um, That's amazing education. Yeah. And, and it was exciting. Um, and I also got to explore and was exposed to a very high end establishments in Manhattan. Um, I was going to Nello's on Madison Ave when I was a teenager and had no idea that Nello's was like a cool, fancy place. Yeah, you had um, no idea. It was just where you went with no idea. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That was where we would go and they would take good care of us. And we'd go with my, you know, my mother, my sister. And uh, but fast forward to so my background, hospitality, and I ended up burning out. I was running um, nightclubs, restaurants. I started in hotels. Uh, I was getting in it, you know, four or five in the morning after closing down the, the lounge and meatpacking. And it was daunting. It was really exhausting line of work. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. And that gave me a lot of exposure to New York. I ran at, at one point the hottest nightclub in, in the meatpacking district called 10 June. 10 which, June, which yeah, is, baby, let's which, go. Which, that's right. Boop, yeah, boop, boop. there he is. I probably didn't let you in at some point if you came with a, with the. Oh, I was, I was in. I was going in with Jeter. 
back door. There you go. There you go. Um, no, but it gave me a lot of exposure to a lot of very interesting people in the city. It also kind of shed a light on, you know, what I, one thing I've learned in life is not necessarily figuring out what you want to do, but also figuring out what you don't want to do. And I had this whole plan on, I'm going to be the next Ian Traeger boutique hotel, you know, the spa, the lounge, the restaurant, the Chateau Marmont. Yeah, kind it sounds of like that was the path you were on initially. And then I realized that oh, the, like, owners, uh-uh, the no. owners of the hotel are, are there on a Sunday. The owners of the nightclub are there Saturday at 3 a.m. And, and I just I didn't want that life. So um, I met a lot of people in finance, a lot of people in real estate and decided that real estate was a path I wanted to go down. I understood real estate. I bought investment properties. Uh, at the downturn, which is right around, you know, 2009, 10, 11, uh, multifamily properties in New Jersey and in South Florida. And um, it was something that I felt I understood. I could I could navigate transactions. I loved architecture and design. I understood space very well because part of my job in hospitality was laying out rooms every single night. You're laying out who's going where and how this is supposed to all come together. That's all part of the experience. So fast forward, I got into real estate. Um, and I almost left year one because I made no money. I made absolutely, That's typical, I think I spent, That's most all, spent all my savings. I think I made $11,000 in, in the first 12 months. That's why 90% of people in real estate are gone after a year or two or whatever it is, but that's, that's generally how it is. So it's interesting to stop you to, to if you, if you reverse engineer how to, you know, be, to become a big real estate luxury agent in New York city your background is like the reverse engineer, you know, totally be raised with a, an educator on one side. And then your dad, who sounded like the ultimate sort of luxury salesman, you know, yeah. and then to get into selling, hospitality. Well, he was selling Cristal um, and Domain Not and, and these high-end brands yeah. that really, you know, it, it is same. a luxury. So it's, it's something that I was totally exposed to. It. And when you look at it on paper and reverse engineer and sort of look at this roadmap that, was definitely not a direct line to getting where I am and, and sort of what's ahead of us. Um, it all makes a lot of sense. It makes a but ton of sense time, now. I no it didn't make sense at uh, three in the morning when you're falling yeah. asleep. You're like, I got to get the heck out of here at 10 yeah. June. Yep. That's right. Yeah, 10, 10 years ago, it made no sense. Today, it makes so a lot of sense. Now, we're, you're ventured real estate. So let's Let's remember, let's see if you can get back to what it was like that first year. You said you made 11,000. So obviously you're blowing through money. You came off this Thanks other career dollar. where you I, were- I had probably, one month of rent. Yeah. I had one month of rent left. So what is what were the challenges? What were you, What try to put yourself back in that headspace for people that are grinding, trying to break through in this business. Because, you know, majority of people don't break through or they're struggling to break through. And it's real. Even guys that get to the top of the game. I mean, I went through it too. There's tough times trying to establish yourself in this business. Um, absolutely tough times. And I don't know if you saw my deep inhale, exhale, pause, because when you said put myself back in that mindset, it just uh, freak you it's, out. Still, it's still anxiety inducing. Um, but, but frankly, it was a gift. And I'll tell you why. Um, I assumed, um, and of course, I, I emphasize the word assume, that I had this great social network. I knew all these people. Everybody, you know, I'm a pretty friendly, non-controversial person. So I had a lot of, you know, friends and a big network of people yep. that, of course, they'd want to work with me uh, on, in some real estate capacity. What I didn't realize was everybody knows a broker. Yeah. They know or more than one broker. Six. <laughs> yeah, five or six. 
all of those brokers have more experience than I do at this point because I'm just starting the business. And I really didn't even know where to begin. Um, what I learned very quickly, and some a friend of mine who's in the business was actually retelling me the story because I, I forgot it. Um, I actually made a very conscious decision to not do the low hanging fruit. I wouldn't do rentals, low, you know, studio entry level rentals. I wouldn't do that. Anything under a million dollars, I wasn't touching. I wouldn't take business in, you know, wow. financial district or in Harlem just for the sake of getting a check. I would not do that. Wow. Um, so and more very I, disciplined on your approach and strategy. Yeah, and and almost inadvertently, right? I, I can't, I cannot tell you with a straight face that it was by design. But what I will tell you is that made me hone in on the the markets that I wanted to learn, and I I truly believe it cut the learning curve considerably because you can't be everything to everyone. I did not want to be a jack of all trades. I wanted to stay in my zone. I wanted to work with very specific property, a very uh, specific price point. And at the time it was, there was no metric or, or basis on how to do it. There's no plan or roadmap on how to do it. Um, you know, I'm a big manifester. So I'd create, I had a vision board and, and on my board, um, I remember my second year on my board, I wanted to sell a building. I wanted to have the highest price sale of a week in the week. And I wanted to do a deal off market. And I, ironically, I did a deal 43 Crosby street. My second year in the business, I sold this building for uh, 15 million wow, and it was, it, and it was off market highest sale of the week and a building in Soho. So, uh, you know, I would say, and by no means am I in a position to give anyone direction, but what I would say that worked for me is I was very disciplined. Um, I stayed focused. I didn't lose hope. I was very close to it. I'm very fortunate. I have a good support system of friends who kind of would talk me off the ledge when I was like, oh, maybe I should leave. Maybe I should go back to hospitality. And everyone was like, stay patient, stay patient. You know, you're, you're 20, you're 26 years old. Like it, it'll, it'll come. Um, but a, again, manifesting. And it, it, it's not as simple as to want those things. You have to take measures to be prepared to actually execute on that and know the market and know the buildings and know how to handle a, a large transaction. I'm very fortunate. I also had very good managers at that time in my career where I really needed them and someone to hold my hand through that kind of a deal. It's a really important point because we hear so much the narrative of hey, manifest, meditate, mindfulness, and for sure, I'm a believer in that. You clearly have had a lot of success. A lot of successful people are uh, disciplined with that, but it's not just that. You still have to put oh, in yeah. the work day to day, hour to hour, month, year, multiple years. It doesn't just happen. You know, you got to visualize it, focus on it, and then execute your plan. It doesn't happen totally. one without the other. So, uh, interesting point. So, you came close to hanging them up, as we all did. I remember those moments, those first few years. Very like, close. Yeah, there's those moments. Closer than I'd like to admit. I remember texting friends of mine who who had um, owned nightclubs, asking if I if there was an opportunity to be a maitre d' or run the door at night yeah. while I was working in real estate during the day because I, I had no money left. Yeah. So you had a big breakthrough sale in year two, which is huge. I, my question was going to be, at what point, how many years in did you feel like, okay, I, I, this is what I'm doing. I don't have to worry about paying my rent. I don't have to think about switching careers. This is what I'm doing now. Because uh, I know a lot of people struggle with that for many years. My, uh, it was year two and it was not that sale, by the way. The, the, I, was, 
I worked at a company town residential. They, right. their model, very different than um, a lot of other brokerages. Although now that I think about it, different than compass model in Manhattan, but similar to other brokerage models in the country is they would take retail space. So you'd have walk-in traffic. And I, I, I did what was called floor time. Yep. Um, I'd sign up from 10 to 12 or 12 to two every Saturday and Sunday, every, like every single weekend, every weekend, every weekend, not sleeping I did not, in. you're there. I was not sleeping in. I was not traveling. I didn't have money to, to travel. So there was not no watching football, not, <laughs> not, no, well, you know, t- 10 to 12, I would do Sunday sometime because I could do football after, after. but, um, Saturday, 12 to two. And, and I was very fortunate because the office I worked in was Soho. So there was a brunch community or brunch scene. I was across from a restaurant, Felix, which is a very lively uh, atmosphere. And I got very lucky. I had somebody walk in, a walk-in to the office who, um, who's still a dear friend. And frankly, I don't even think he knows how much he changed my life and, and the trajectory of my career. But no, he's a very famous- No, now. <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send him this when, when we're done recording. Um, he's a famous architect from Milan. And he wanted a Soho loft. And the reason I reference famous architect is because creative types, in my experience, particularly anyone in the real estate creative sense, so designers, architects, they're very specific on their requirements and they want something that's very special. Now, there's a lot of special property in Manhattan, but there's also a lot of new development property, which tend to be more cookie cutter. And that's a non-starter for for this client, at least. So I looked at about 200 lofts with him. 200. Um, and he would come to town once a month and we'd go out and look at stuff and I'd preview things and I'd video things and I'd send him off markets and I'd call every broker who did deals and buildings that I thought would be interesting. And by the time we actually found something and executed on it, I knew that market so, so well. And I, the confidence. So the biggest thing that happened fast forward is I, we enter a contract on his, his purchase. Um, we then enter contract on his sale. So I do two, two transactions with him totaling, I think it was $4 million between both. Um, so, so great, particularly as someone who I had no income. So that's a, was a, was a very nice, um, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what clicked was the confidence. I was, I, what I saw was, okay, I took a year to learn a market. I took a year to learn the process. Um, I had a lot of losses in that period, but I got two really good wins and they were really difficult transactions and really difficult structures of transaction. And if I can do this, like, you know, the, the cash buyer in a condo down the street, like that, that's a layup. That's, you know, what I had to do here in board packages and co-ops and for, the first foreign purchaser in a co-op. And then I yeah. sold his loft, which was a walk up in a carriage house that had no board formed. I mean, these were very nuanced deals. Um, and when I got through them, it just, it all clicked that I was like, I can do this. Again, that's an MBA in high-end luxury real estate that you can't get that at Stanford or Harvard. You gotta nope. do it yourself. And most people don't want to put the time in or don't even think about it. And here you are, first, things that stand out. You're sitting, you're doing floor time every weekend. A young single guy, or you may not have been single, but young guys who want to be partying and this and that. Not, not married, not kids. So for, yeah. we'll, we'll call it single, for especially at that time. At that time. It, yeah. And you're doing it week after week after week after week. And you're like, oh, I got lucky. Well, you made your luck, right? How many totally. weeks and hours did you spend there? You spent dedicated a year or two 
doing that and you got lucky. Well, that's what it took to put you in position to get that client. And then you dedicated yourself for a year learning all this nuanced inventory. So now you're an expert in this specific high-end, challenging, nuanced market. I mean, that's that's what it's about, right? Like that's why you're successful. And people don't understand that it doesn't just happen overnight. You have to put the work in. This is not an easy business. And if you're no. gonna compete and make this this kind of money, you gotta be prepared to put that kind of work in. You're not gonna be a big leaguer and not practice, right? right. But it's funny you say that because I, I don't know that I ever take the moment to take a step back and, and think about these stories that I'm you know so so fortunate to be sharing with you. But when I do, and your reaction to it is like, of course that's what happened, right? You're you're in the weeds, you're in the flow so much that yeah. you're not necessarily thinking about this is step one, this is step two, this is step three, this is step four, and step five is a is a closing. Yeah. Right. I'm just going through the motions. I had no frame of reference. I had no, I didn't really know what to expect other than keep going, keep going, keep going. And in hindsight, you're right. Those that floor time was a sacrifice. Uh the the seeing 200 apartments was an expertise. I it, they I always my client created the expert. I wasn't the expert. This this mandate what created an expertise. Yeah. And this brings me to another crucial element of succeeding in what we do, what you just said. You put all this time in, you had doing floor time, learning. There was never a guarantee that you were gonna get any deal. Oh no. You gotta be uncomfortable and be comfortable being uncomfortable knowing that I'm putting all this time in, I might never make a penny. And that's that Mamba mentality from basketball to business. And that's what you have to have because there's no guarantee. We could work with a client for three years and it doesn't happen. We could study and do open houses for five years. So that these are these are such nuggets of wisdom. And, and one thing to your point of no guarantee, I think often, um, oftentimes I should say, agents look at the end result as yes, the transaction 100%. or the closing or the check or whatever 100%. version of they, they celebrate. When I think of those things, the no guarantee of a closing was one thing, but I had a a bona fide Googleable client that I now had a reason to call every top agent downtown to preview every property, yeah. to write owners. I mean, I was writing handwritten letters to certain buildings to see if I could drop up an off market sale. I entered the market, I entered the business, I should say, I got my license November, I think it was 12th. Um, 2012, which or might have been the 18th, but something it was it was the day of Sandy, Hurricane Sandy. Um, whole other conversation, not necessarily relevant to this, but I entered the market in what was coming out of the downturn and ramping up into a very aggressive market. And as someone with no market share and someone with no previous business, no resume, it was very challenging um, to do business. Yep. So I I actually look at that as a gift. I was fortunate to have some free time at this at that stage of my career where I could develop good habits to try to unlock value and create some competitive edge for my client, i.e., writing handwritten notes. And that and I and it? that that, exer that exercise, I should say, has trans has translated to transactions by sitting down, studying a building. I want the you know 68 Jane perfect example. It was a pre-war building in the West Village, perfect for the client. I hand I I pulled all the previous transactions. I wrote handwritten notes to everyone in there. I, the owner of the penthouse called me. Huh. Um, 
Yeah. And, and you know what he said is I have a deep respect for this because when I started my career, he was ex-finance guy. I used to write handwritten notes to try to get people to take me seriously. And he gave me a meeting. I didn't end up doing a deal with him, but I, he allowed me to show the property. Um, I was very close to a deal and we kept in touch. It's so, so all of that happened and, and again, good habits. So the end, the end goal, which was to close a deal is great, but what I got in the process, the education, all those other sort of um, benefits, supplementary or ancillary benefits that came with doing a deal were really what stand out today. Handwritten notes, all the technology, all the social media and handwritten notes are still so effective. Yeah, Robert Reffin and I'm always a lefty. says that. I'm a lefty. So when I write, sometimes it's, it's you know, the ink streaks. Well, you have me. that that's awful handwriting. Yeah. That's how they know I really wrote it. Yeah. And, you know, Robert always talks about handwritten notes and he sent notes wholly to mentors and he's built a, a mentorship network from it. And it's like, okay, handwritten notes. Go back to old about school. 30 minutes ink of your a day. pen. Yeah. 30 minutes of your day. By yeah. the way, could be 30 minutes a week. Yeah. Just do, just do it. Just the exercise. Do it. I still do it. Yeah. So today here you are sitting on a huge team uh, with a ton of business, a billion, I don't know what you said. I can't even. 1.3, Danny. 1.3. I'm choking on that number. Uh, so that said, it's not always uh, you know whipped cream and cherries. Talk to me about at this stage of your team and career and the, your business, what are some of your biggest challenges? What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that make you like get that sick stomach feel? Oh man. Um, Everything pretty much, right? Yeah. yeah basically, basically the business in itself. No, yeah. um, I think that I'm, I'm not oblivious and I'm very fortunate as everyone on my team is that we had such an incredible year. It, it's not lost on me that that those numbers are head scratching. Yeah. Um, what comes with that is a pre is the pressure to do it again. Um, and I don't, I'm, you know, people often say you're only as good as your last deal, removing that one good year is not enough for me. I don't want to be the person who had a, a banner year and then flame out. Um, so for us, it's, it's consistency. It's also team building and, and being better leaders. And, and that also comes with personal growth. So that's something that I know I speak for Clayton as well. That's something that we're both working on and taking very seriously um, while also trying to be the best that we can be in our particular markets for our clients. Um, so I think that it's what keeps me up at night is constantly trying to be better, constantly trying to be better. This is not a business that, you know, you have one great year and now it's like a legacy business and you don't have to work hard anymore. Or you don't have to try anymore. Or your phone's going to just ring with inbound. Every time your phone rings, it's like a dollar sign. Right. That is not, at least for me, that's not the world I'm in. Not um, the other, the other version of that is, is, you know, the team building and trying to be better leader just for, for the team and being present for the team and holding space for the team and making sure that if Ian or Claire or Ryan or Aaron or anyone on the team needs something, I'm available for them. And that's, it's challenging because, you know, I'm also trying to be present for my girlfriend. I'm also trying to be present for my family, my parents, um, because I don't have children. And so to do all of that and still be broker um, or rainmaker, not team manager, but also wearing somewhat of a management hat is, is challenging. So it's exciting. It's I don't think the challenges they're daunting, but um, I don't think that the challenges they don't phase me in a way that it 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 makes me jump out of bed every morning. And so these challenges are good. 
So really quick, talk me through your morning routine, your first hour or two of a day. What what does that look like with oh, all this pressure and all this stuff? And uh, you don't have kids, you're not married, but still balance and trying to figure out how to work in a life and family and relationships with all this business. But I'd be curious how, how the day starts. Um, I'm going to answer your question very directly on how the day starts, but I will start by saying if somebody can tell me, someone who's figured it out on how to actually have a very well-balanced life, I would, I would, you know, love to talk to them. I have not figured that out. I have not figured that out. Um, how my day starts. I have a dog. I'm a big dog guy. Um, first thing I do every morning, grab my phone. I do my best not to look at it right away, but I grab, grab my phone, make sure I'm, make sure I'm fully charged, make sure my AirPods are fully charged. My days, my alarm goes off at six 30. Sometimes I have calls at seven. So, you know, it's not necessarily a soft landing every morning, yeah. but I grab my dog. We go for a walk. I grab a coffee. The first hour of my day, I really prefer to just be me and him and kind of, I, I can't necessarily call New York City nature, but we'll call it nature for conversation's yeah. sake. Outside, fresh air, not so reactive right away. Yeah. Right. And that has a lot to do with having a business partner. Um, I know that anything that if there's anything in crisis mode, I'm aware of it. Um, if I go to bed early, I know that he's probably up doing work. If he goes to bed early, I'm up doing work. We, you know, if, if I wake up early and he's sleeping in, I'm making sure that I'm knocking out the things that have to happen first so that there is a um, sense of flow and there is a sense of normalcy. Otherwise, you're just working all day and all night and you go to bed to close your eyes, but you're not even getting rest. So first hour of my day is I try to keep it cool and calm. And then I'm in, in front of a computer for an hour, almost non-negotiably, where I'm knocking out everything that I need to that happened last night, everything that's happening in the morning and everything that's in front of my day. Hope typically an hour is enough for that. And that sets the day up for relative success. I will not tell you that it sets it up to be a smooth day. I cannot, I, I will not lie to you. There's things um, change during the day, schedules change, things come yeah. up. <laughs> I can plan the perfect day. Grenades are thrown into your into your schedule. Yeah. yeah. Every day. Yeah. Without fail. So so part of it is frankly learning to deal with that yeah. and, and making sure that that you know, the, when you're in the eye of the storm, everything happening around you doesn't pull you into it, right? You want to be, you have to have a plan. Um, I, I have not started to meditate. It's February 11th. It is on my new year resolution list. Still got 11 uh, months. You got, I know, time. I know, but, but, you know, a lot of people do meditate, um, 15 minutes in the morning and kind of keep them cool and calm. We're in a business that's very reactive. You can be as proactive as you want, your day, your schedule is not going to happen according to your schedule. It's it, again, if someone's figured this out, I'd love to speak to them. I have not. I have not either. And I think what, the way you've articulated is true. You can have it planned out. You can time block. You can do that. You can be organized. You can meditate. What, but things are coming at us so fast and you have to learn how to stay calm while everyone else around you is losing their mind. And things are breaking down and you got to be comfortable in that uncomfortable zone. And, totally. uh, you know, at the same time weighing in that you have to get things accomplished so you can't get totally distracted from your plan. Well, and some things are more time sensitive than others. And, and some things have bigger stakes and bigger swings than others. So it's really also having the ability to, to make decisions on the fly and, and you hope you're making the right one, but net net, you have to make them things that your to-do list doesn't cross itself off. Uh, 
couple questions. Any books you'd recommend or lectures or speakers you'd recommend to agents or you know people in our business that you think would be um, helpful? Great podcast. It's called The Deal with Danny Brown. Yes. A plus. Uh, I'm <laughs> After reading that, the- that's it. You're good. Yeah, that's, all, that's all anyone needs for success. <laughs> I'm reading The 12-Week Year right now, um, which Cindy Scholes, who runs our Hamptons business um, and helped launch that market with us, recommended and i'm obsessed uh, i'm again big manifester big goal setter i try to put plans in place and systems in place and this like re it changed the the way i think about all of that and it, it the the i have not finished it but where i am which is i don't know a third third of the way through it is that every quarter should be your metric not every year That's correct. and it's an easier way I, where it's beneficial for me is it's short-term goals short-term planning it's not so you're not thinking about it that it's so far away that it's somewhat ambiguous, right? I know that for me to have 12 weeks, every week's important, every day is important. And you can actually break it down. And it's as simple as, you know, where I am in the book right now is I wrote down, if I if every day was a great day, what would have to happen every single day? I'm getting and, that and book, I haven't read it. I love it. Amazing. And it and it's an easy read. You'll, I mean, you could finish it in you know a couple of days or a week if you really wanted to. But that's that's um, my recommendation for that. All right. If I'm jumping on a plane now and coming to New York tonight for dinner, where uh, where are you get me in? Where are the hot restaurants? Oh boy, oh boy. Well, the 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 gift and the curse of New York restaurant scene right now is that it's very difficult to get reservations at the moment. But you're getting um, me in. So where are we going? I'm, uh, listen, I'm getting you in. We're gonna go. We're going to go to Zero Bond, which is a members club. Perfect. Because I know I can get you in there. Perfect. I like, um, I like clubs. Yeah, that's where we're going to go. We're going to do, it's, you know, there's there's two or three restaurants in the space. There's a bar. There's a library area. You can go play backgammon. It's, you know, but it's a nice social environment. It's not Annabelle's, but it will do on last second. That's you know, as, as good as we're, by the way, I, word on the street is Annabelle's might be coming to New York. Oh, Who knows? amazing. Now, how about if it's, you know, July and we're, going to the Hamptons to fly out. Where are we going to dinner? I'm a crow's nest guy. I like crow's nest in Montauk. I like that you know that you're going out to the Hamptons. Montauk too, because we're surfing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And and crow's nest is beautiful. Um, awesome. It's got this rustic kind of natural feeling to it that I think re- most guests who we bring there tend to really appreciate it. Yeah. As we, as we cut off uh, now, we're about to end, but I want you to give us like a quick elevator pitch on the New York City market, which I know is on fire, but from an insider's view, what is the 30-second elevator pitch on New York City high-end luxury real estate uh, in 2022, as we're speaking now? So the trend we're seeing is very thin inventory. And I think that's been a trend that you've seen in your markets, certainly a trend in the South Florida market. Um, I have not seen a market that's been so inventory constrained before. Um, really started mid, you know, Q2, Q3 last year. Um, the market's on fire. There are more 10 plus million dollar deals happening than ever before. Um, if there was more inventory, there would be, we'd see sustained activity from last year. My concern is that there, the lack of inventory will actually have transaction volume lower. And depending on how the media chooses to spin that, um, that narrative could be that New York's slowing down. But I can tell you, boots on the ground, in the trenches every day, it is absolutely not the case. 
Uh, New York City markets is very healthy, very alive. There's very sophisticated buyers and there's very smart sellers taking advantage of it. Yeah, sounds very similar to what we're seeing here on the West side. Steven, thanks for joining us. I know you're a busy man. Go enjoy yourself in Miami. Great to see My you. My pleasure, Danny. Look forward to grabbing dinner soon. Uh, in yeah, New York, gonna get you to the East Montauk. Coast. Yeah, and if you're out here, we'll we'll go somewhere too. Yeah, before we go, I'm gonna flip that question. Where are we going when I fly out in two weeks? Uh, I, I like old school Dantana's, Craig's. Italian. God, we're done. Done. You know, I'm your Italian's guy. always good. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a Ferrara from North Jersey, so I think no, that's you perfect. Know. You'll be right at home. Yeah. <laughs> Great to see you, man. Thanks. You killed Thanks it. Have me, Danny. Talk to you.